this Father's Day. And we certainly would like to honor each of our fathers this morning. In a moment, men, I'm going to have you stand. And we will have a word of prayer with you. I heard a story, though, that is pretty good. And I thought I'd share it with you before we pray for the fathers this morning. There were four expected fathers in a Minneapolis hospital waiting room while their wives were in labor. The nurse comes out and tells the first man, congratulations, you're the father of twins. Man, that's a coincidence, the man replies. I work for the Minnesota Twins baseball team. The nurse goes back in and she comes back out, tells the second man, you're the father of triplets. Man, that's an even crazier coincidence. I work for 3M. Nurse goes back in and comes back out and tells the third man that his wife has given birth to quadruplets. Oh, quadruplets, I'm telling you. Good luck. The man is astonished. He said, that is amazing. I work at the Four Seasons Hotel. <laughs> at this point, the fourth guy faints. <laughs> when he comes to the others, say, buddy, what is wrong with you? He said, I... Work for 7-Up! <laughs> Imagine that. I am grateful for my father. I am honored to be a father. I'm also mindful of the homes in our church that do not have a father. So many of you will stand with me this morning. If you are a father in here, I'd like to pray for you. And on this particular Father's Day, I've asked Corbin to stand for his father. I encourage you men in your homes to find those in our church who may not have a father be a help and blessing to them. Father, I thank you for these men who are standing. I thank you for who they are. And I thank you for how they lead in their homes. Lord, we're not perfect. But the goal of a Christian is to be perfecting or maturing every day. And so I pray that your grace would be upon these men, young and old, some have run the race of raising the children up through and out of their homes. Some are even standing here as second generation and third generation watching grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I thank you for the principles of the word of God that allow us to be the kind of men we ought to be. Bless these homes. Lord, I am mindful that there are many young people, even in our church, who are without fathers in the home. The reasons vary and are different. But I pray that we as a church family would do all that we can, that men would do all that we can, to make sure we help and encourage those where a father may not be home. Bless us this day, I pray, as we honor 
fathers, but also the role of a man that you have established in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you, you may be seated. Take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 16 as we continue in our series on different homes. I want to read two verses. Really, we'll just focus on one phrase in the first verse that we read today. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 13, Paul is wrapping up his letter to the church at Corinth, and he's told them a lot because they were a church that had a lot of needs and had a lot of struggles and a lot of problems. And at the very end of that particular letter, he writes these words to the church and particularly to the men of the church. He says, Watch ye, in verse 13, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong, let all your things be done with charity. Father, help us this morning as we turn to the word of God, that we understand it, and may we do it, in Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this passage this morning, and as we understand that we're studying the role of a man that God has established in his book, we have to understand what that little word quit means. The word quit means to behave oneself with wisdom and with courage. The idea that Paul is saying to these Christian homes and to the men in these Christian homes is that it will not be easy to be a biblical man in the culture in which you live. It will take work. You're going to have to have a good constitution and a strong backbone to accomplish that which God has for you. So I ask this morning as we begin our thoughts for the preaching, what have we done to men in our modern society? We have made men irrelevant. We have made men effeminate. We have made men the enemy. We have emasculated and so denigrated the role of a man that no positive view of a man can be held anymore. There was general contempt from the pre-World War II breadwinner in our world today. The idea of a head of a household. This decimation of manhood is intentional and it's evil. And sadly, far too many Christian men are complicit in the downfall of our role. When the government, interestingly, began to wage war on poverty in the 1960s, one of the chief targets was to replace men in the home. They wanted government to be the one that everyone depended on, not a man. At that time, then, a woman could begin to become pregnant, bear the child, and the government, not the father, would compensate and remunerate the woman for her struggles. In the 1950s, there were statistically 85% of homes having the dad present and working within it. Today, that statistic is less than 43%. It's high time that we as Christians, and particularly Christian men, wake up to our role. I'm not going to preach a message this morning on our defiance and where we should march on or time to bear arms. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. 
I'm going to preach a message, and if each man will commit themselves to doing the three things we looked at this morning, your home and you as a biblical man will be a success. It takes one after another after another to rebuild the culture that has been corroded and corrupted by the devil himself. This morning I want us to look at the role of a man that God defines. When we studied the role of a woman on Mother's Day, we noted that the woman's role was to her maker, to her mate, and as a mother. Today, it was a bit harder for me to get my alliterative mojo going throughout the week. So we start with the role of the man, or we will look at the three areas of the man and his lord, the man and his lady, sorry, that means his wife, and the man and his lads and lasses. I was stuck on L's this week, okay? I'm just telling you, I'm just being honest. To his lord, to his wife, his lady, to his children, his lads and his lasses. First, let's look at the obedience that he has to his Lord. The obedience that he has to his Lord. Mankind is to obey God. But the chief agent charged with obeying God was Adam himself, man. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. I long ago have preached a message and have held and believe as a firm conviction nearly everything about practical Christian living can be found in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. If you will just look. You will find it easily there. In Genesis chapter number 2, we've read this uh, several weeks, so some of you might be able to start quoting it if I keep reading it. And that's kind of the secret backdoor nefarious end that I'm trying to do to make you know where these things are in the word of God. The Bible says in Genesis 2 and verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... Thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. Obedience is the central word for the Christian life. It is the operative word if you want to be successful. Years ago, Neil Deering said to me and to all of us in a Sunday school class, I want to say it was back in 2010 or 2011 when Neil was teaching the Sunday school lesson. He said the key word to understanding the whole of the Bible is the word obey. And I thought that is dead on accurate. Obedience to his Lord, we find letter A in our notes, he must know God. You cannot obey someone you do not know. Your children would have an awful hard time coming into my house and obeying our house rules because they don't really know me. They might know me as pastor, the guy that gets up in a suit and tie and sometimes gets loud and sometimes gets quiet. They don't know me. They don't know my rules. But they know you, Dad, and they know what you have set down for your home. So it is for a man. We must know the Lord. Obedience to the Lord begins by us knowing him. Sin is a sign to Adam because he knew God's word. That's what it says there in Genesis 2 and verses 16 and 17. God commanded the man, it says. That command that God gave was to be obeyed perfectly. There is a wonderful intimacy in that statement. He says to him, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of that one tree thou shalt not eat. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Man's role is to obey God. God 
told him what to do and what not to do, and he directly disobeyed. The God he knew, the God who had created him, the one that walked with him in the cool of the morning, that God that he knew, he chose to disobey. The prophet Isaiah wrote this, My people perish for the lack of knowledge. The people perished because the priests, the men in that particular passage, had failed or rejected to know God, to know or study his word, and then to do it or to apply it in their lives and in their homes. Dad, let me ask you a question this morning. Men, let me ask you a question this morning. How well do you know God? Do you know why struggles will teach you how to trust God? They'll teach you things that you never knew before about God. It is usually in the valleys of life, the deep valleys, the painful valleys that we walk through. It is in those times that we know our God most. You say, well, it was when Moses went up on the mountaintop that he met with God. That's right. And when Moses came back down off that mountaintop, having received the instruction, down into that valley with the people that he had to minister to and that he had to serve alongside, it was then that he really knew God because he had to do what he was told. The second thing that we find is that he must keep God's word. The role of a man is in obedience to his Lord. It begins by him knowing God, but it goes further from knowing to keeping his word. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6 says this, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof. By the way, if I put a pause here, we'll keep the verse up. She was not guilty of sin. You say, but she took first. Right. She did not have the command given directly to her. Adam did. The command was given to Adam before Eve was ever created. Before she was ever brought to be his helpmeet. He was the one that was to provide for her clarity and understanding of the God he knew. It was his responsibility to keep commandments of the Lord. He goes on in that verse and says, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and here's where sin entered, and he did eat. The moment of truth for Adam came when Eve offered the fruit. Was he going to keep God's word or was he going to keep himself in companionship with his mate? Men, there may be times in your life when the whole world is going to hell, but you have to keep walking towards heaven. It is your responsibility and your responsibility alone to keep God's word. Well, everybody else is doing it. Does that work when our kids say it to us? No. It never worked when I was a child either. The devil found and beguiled, the Bible says, or tricked Eve. He then used Eve to tempt Adam. Adam's failure came when he did not guard his heart with all diligence. Obedience is most often not a matter of the head. It is most often a matter of the heart. Oh, yes, you can sin in ignorance not knowing what the, the Bible says or what God has told us men. 
But most of our sins are not that way. Most of our sins are in the realm with, of the things that we know full well. James speaks to this in James 4 and verse 17. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is what? Sin. There isn't a lack of knowing. There's a lack of wanting to do good in most men. By the way, why is it that the government has been successful in convincing more than half of our society that they do not need to be a father to the child that they have, that they do not need to be the kind of husbands that they ought to be, that they do not need to be the man that God's intended for them to be? Why have more than half of our population believed that lie? Because it's easier. It's easier to walk away. Not my problem. Friends, it's a matter of the heart, not a matter of the head. To keep God's word as a man, as we should, we are told to keep our hearts with all diligence in Proverbs chapter number four. Why? Because it finishes that verse by saying, for out of it flow the issues of life. The role of a man is to be in obedience to the Lord. I ask you men this morning, are you willing to obey what you find in the word of God? You cannot know what, the, what to obey or what commands there are if you don't spend a moment in it. The value of knowing God and then keeping his word is what makes you first and foremost successful as a man. Obedience. To his Lord. Then he is to have number two. An openness with his lady. We'll go ahead and say wife here. But I only have one lady. That's my wife. She's the only gal for me. We live in an age. Where time. And energies. Are spent on everything. Other than oneness in a marriage. We talked about this at length last Sunday morning, so I'll not go and belabor the point of marital relationships again today, except to say to a man, your first role is obedience. Your second role is that when you find the one whom your soul loves, as Solomon wrote in his Song of Songs, when you find that one, it is your responsibility, not hers, it is your responsibility to be open and communicative to her. How many men, when they come home from work, do this every night? Ah, oh, leave me alone. Pastor, you do that so well. <laughs> Pastor doesn't always preach to you first. Sometimes he preaches first to himself. Life can be very busy sometimes. At seasons, it becomes overwhelming. But my responsibility is still to have an openness and free-flowing communication with my wife, the bride, my wife of my youth, as the Bible calls her. Obedience to his Lord is the first role of a man, but openness with his wife is the second one. Second one. We find letter A. How do we do that? We first uh, 
uh, accomplish this openness by maintaining our honesty. We maintain our honesty with them. We're going to get into the weeds a little bit on this, men, because this message is directed at you. The ladies today are sitting back going, ah, I've been waiting for this one. I'll cook you a good meal this afternoon, Pastor, but you cook him right now. <laughs> Proverbs 11, verse 3, the Bible says, The integrity of the upright shall guide them. But the perverseness of transgressors shall destroy them. Do you know why most marriages are destroyed? It's because both the husband and the wife, but primarily the husband, is not bringing integrity of character, honesty in his speech and in his conduct into the home. It's the hidden things of the heart that keep the home from thriving. Colossians 3 and verse 9 says this, Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. In Ephesians 4, Paul says this in verse 15, But speaking the truth in love may grow up, speaking of the church as a whole, into him all things which is the head, even Christ. If we men are to be the leaders in the church as we are in the home, then it means we must be those speakers of truth. Later in verse 25, he says this, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. Do you know who my first and primary neighbor in my life is? That lady sitting on the front row over there. I must be honest with her. Dr. Willard Harley wrote five rules for honesty. I thought I'd read them to you and with a little context from his writing so that we understand, men, what we're talking about when we say honesty. He writes, first, there must be emotional honesty. Reveal your emotional reactions, both positive and negative, to the events of your life, particularly to your spouse's behavior. You need a steady flow of accurate data from each other. And men, if you are not offering up how you feel, and we are in an age where men just don't tell how they feel. It's not right. It's not biblical. I'm not suggesting we go around whining. Every time somebody says to me, man, there's a whole lot of whining, and the answer is, yeah, get the cheese out because here comes the wine. And that's the problem for so many marriages. The men are so clammed up that when it comes out in the emotional distress or when the emotions do flow, it's usually anger and outburst. But if there's an open and honest relationship, then men, you're going to come home and not talk about all oh, the terrible things that happened to me. But you're going to come home and say, yeah, that made me upset. Or this happened and I didn't like it, so tomorrow I'm going to try something different. Or, you know what? When the kids do this, or when we do this, or when we get to this position financially, I'm a little nervous as the one that's supposed to be providing. There has to be an open and honest conversation about what it is we are feeling. Your wives cannot make you tell them, but they can ask you the questions. And when they do, she's the one that your soul loves. Tell her. The second, he says, is historical honesty. It means reveal information about your personal history, particularly events that demonstrate personal weakness or failure. <gasps> I can't show weakness to my wife. If you can't show weakness to your wife, to whom can you show your weaknesses? She'll exploit me, pastor. Then come in and talk with me, and we'll work through some marriage counseling. 
But you should be able to share what your weaknesses are. Look, it's only by knowing each other's weaknesses that you can avoid deep, hurtful conflict in the home. A third, he says, is current honesty. He says, reveal information about the events of your day. Jessica will smile at this one every time I come home. She's trying not to overly smile on this fellow. Every day I come home, she says, how was your day? And I always will say, same as yesterday. <laughs> now, I will later open up. She'll come in and she'll sit in my office if I'm reading something. Or she'll sit down and she'll say, well, how was your day? Tell me. I want to know. I've been with these rugrats all day. You get to have adult interaction. The people in the office would tell you it's probably not that adult anyway, the way we talk sometimes. It's just crazy. You're not worried about how staff meetings go on Monday. Why, men, would your wife want to know that? Because they want to know you. They want to know about you. Now, as a pastor, by the way, there are some things that I can't share with them. If I'm counseling somebody, my, my responsibility is not to go home to my wife and go, let me tell you what this person did. Look, if you're trusting me with that information, there's some things I can't share. But current honesty about pray for this family. She knows when I say that, that means pray for that family. A, third, a fourth one he says is future honesty. Reveal your thoughts and plans, men, regarding future activities and objectives. You know, most marriages that we end up counseling or I end up spending time with, they are because the men have not communicated not just what they want, but what the future holds. And you say, well, Pastor, there's no way I can know what the future holds. No, but you can plan for it. It is the prudent man that sees the trouble out there, and when that trouble starts heading his way, he moves himself out of that troubled way. If we're on a mountainous path, the picture is hiding in the cleft of the rock, which is our Savior, Jesus Christ. We hide under him as the trouble comes, but we still have to make future plans. The final one that he puts in his book is complete honesty. Do not leave your spouse with a false impression about your thoughts, feelings, habits, or dislikes. Do not deliberately keep personal information from them. Be completely honest. Now, ladies, be careful. I heard of a man, I think it was somewhere in Oklahoma, who was in the hospital with a concussion. Why, you might ask? Because he answered that dreaded question in a completely honest way. What is that dreaded question, men? Some of you are brave enough to actually yell it out in church. <laughs> if you're the smart ones in here, to be completely honest, are the ones that did this. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Kyle. I have no idea. Here's that dreaded question. Here's what that man in Oklahoma accidentally answered. Do these pants make me look fat? The man said, no, the extra 20 pounds you've gained since you first bought them do. The story goes that she hit him with a frying pan. And in my completely honest opinion, I don't know who was at fault in this one. Men, be honest with your wife, but season it with grace. I might give this admonition. 
from Solomon. In much speaking, there is foolishness. So fewer words are better. Making my point this morning, our homes must be places of honest communication between a husband and his wife. Men, you are the ones that set the tone. We are the ones that provide the open door to free discourse and discussion of all matters of our family. And if your home is not a place of open communication, it is not her fault. It is yours. Honesty is driven by you, the man. Letter B, openness means not just honesty being maintained, but that we mind our humility. I heard this story of George Washington Carver years ago. Wonderful scientist and inventor of American history. He developed hundreds of useful products from the peanut. He's quoted as this, and this is why I love it, because it's absolute humility. George Washington Carver says this, When I was young, I said to God, God, tell me the mystery of the universe. God answered, that knowledge is reserved for me alone. So Dr. Carver said, God, tell me the mystery of the peanut. And God said to George, that's nearly your size, let me tell you. In other words, this is a man who did great things in our country. He was an innovator and scientist, but he understood who he was. He was nothing more than just a peanut. Humility is much about meekness. Meekness is about our power under control. Back when we talked and preached about the lady's role, the woman's role, according to the word of God, I told you ladies we would get to this point. We touched on in the marital relationships, but here it is in its fullness. Men, it is for you to lead your home. Yes, we say. And God says, hold on. Understand what that means. In Ephesians chapter number 5, we would find these words written to us. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that it should be holy and without blemish. Notice the next verse. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth, that means sacrificially, agape, loveth his wife, loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. Men, if you interact with your wife like a dictator instead of a sacrificial leader, then you are a power-hungry egomaniac. By the way, that is why in the middle 1900s, American women threw off male leadership. Men were not sacrificial. They did not value, nor did they venerate the role of a woman. Instead, they abused their position that was God-ordained of loving in leadership through sacrifice for them. Paul, interestingly here in Ephesians 5, links the nourishing of our own bodies to Adam's original statement of who Eve was when God brought her to him in Genesis chapter 2. 
he says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Literally, what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5 is that if you love your wife, you are loving yourself. Put her first in the marriage relationship, and your marriage will be joyful. Men, if you're going to act like men, then you're going to humbly sacrifice for the needs and, yes, even the wants of your wife. That's tough sometimes because the devil lives within us. Our own nature rears up. I want that. This is what I'd like to have. This is who I want to be. This, this, this for me. But if you look out and make sure that your wife is taken care of in every possible way, if you are willing to lay down, not just sacrifice your life in the moments of panic when trials come or when there's some kind of threat against your life, but literally day by day, decision by decision, if you are willing to sacrifice yourself for your wife's betterment, she will never struggle with your position. She'll never have a hard time with your leadership. It will be nothing for her to surrender to your leadership if you will sacrifice for her needs and her wants. Openness to our wives means maintaining honesty and always being mindful of our own humility. If you walk around your house saying, I'm the king of this castle, you may not be for long. Obedience to the Lord, openness with our ladies, and finally, obligation to our lads, our children. The very last verse of the Old Testament reads this way. Malachi 4 and verse 6, And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. That's an interesting way to end all of the Old Testament. What is it telling us? Contextually, I have to be accurate. It's telling us that someday in the future, in verse number 5 of Malachi 4, that Elijah is going to come and be a prophet that will teach and preach in that tribulation day. But the principle is very clear for us. God is very interested in fathers having their hearts towards their children so that in turn their children's hearts will be towards them. And all the while, that father's heart is turned towards Almighty God. I have grieved over the past few days with the funerals of two separate fathers. One was nearly 83. The other was just 40. But I rejoice in the fact that both understood and both fulfilled biblically their role of sharing their hearts with their children. It doesn't matter, men, if you're young or old. If God has blessed your home with children, it is your responsibility to share your heart with them. Dads, there is no replacing this morning you in your kid's life. The church can help. We can assist. But if, dads, you will not teach your sons and daughters the truth and to live by it, if you won't example God's expectations for them, there isn't much anyone else can do to change their hearts towards the Lord. 
The basic problem in America today is that we have fathers who are either physically absent or emotionally and spiritually absent from their kids' lives. If you are privileged to be a father this morning, let me give you two provisions your kids need from you. Letter A, they need you to provide instruction for their life. That includes first by doing, not merely saying. James 1, verses 22 to 25, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man, beholding himself and his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, that's this book, and continueth in therein, meaning stays in it, he, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed or his action. Dad, we need some more doers. A lot less saved. Which one are you? Are you a doer of the word? Then are you just sayers? Well, what preacher preached on was a good thing this week. I'm going to go and do everything exactly against what he said this week. Here we go. Good luck. If you have one child, there's two eyes. If you have two children, there's four eyes. If you have three, there's six, like I have, watching everything you do. It means not just by doing, but it also means in doctrine. These are the foundational truths of our Christian existence. Do you know what the foundational truths of our Christian life are? Can you teach them to your children? A good father never gives instruction about things he doesn't know. I cannot tell you what happens on the trim line, but I met a bunch of people on Thursday night that could tell me what happens on the trim line at Toyota. You do not want me trying to teach my son to go and work at Toyota. I don't know anything about it. You can't teach what you don't know. I quoted the first part of Hosea 4 in verse 6 earlier in the message where I said, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Here's the rest of the verse. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God. I will also forget thy who? Children. It's your responsibility, Dad, to teach your kids what is right and what is wrong. Well, you know, I gave my wife the basic rundown of what she's supposed to teach. Well, I don't have time for that, Pastor. Make time for it. Well, I work too much. Work less. Well, hey, hey, Pastor, if I won't work that much, I won't have the big house. I won't give the big check to the church. I don't care. You fulfill your role, and God will bless you, I promise. The final one is with discipline. Discipline is part of, is part of child rearing, and it cannot be ignored or delegated to the wife, men. If we had time, we would read Hebrews 12, 9 and 10. It reminds us that earthly fathers discipline us for our own good, as does our heavenly father. Wise discipline will always help a child learn to control themselves and keep themselves out of serious trouble. Look at our country. 
I can tell you the one initiative that any politician worth their salt and with a gumption that would fix this nation, it would be to restore in some capacity fatherhood to this land. Take away subsistence where the father is absent on purpose, and you would restore this country to morals and ethics like that. Correct discipline, by the way. Correct discipline is not abusive, it's not angry, and it's not indiscriminate. It's not flying off the handle whenever somebody does something that makes you mad. I can tell you as a father, not as a pastor, but as a father, there have been many times in the 12 years that I have been privileged to be a father where one of mine has done something where I have to say, all right, walk away, child. Go breathe. Don't kill him. That's not right. You'll get in trouble for that. All right. And then I'll go to talk to Jessica, and Jessica says, don't kill him. All right. Okay. All right. And then I will go into their room. My father used to do that with me. I know there were at least a half dozen times my father would have gladly killed me for my misbehavior and my horrible approach to life. Correct discipline is not anger. It's not indiscriminate. It's not abusive. Correct discipline is applied always in love and always to edify, to build them up. It is teaching them what it was that was wrong, why it was wrong, and what they should do next time to do it right. Dads, if you can't articulate that, do not leave that to your wives. You go find out right now. I don't know. What about lying? We'll figure out what is wrong with lying. The Bible has lots to say about that. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination to him, Proverbs 6 tells us. Two on that list of throw-ups, as I like to tell my boys when I'm correcting them, is God literally throwing up. That's what it means. It's an abomination. He's vomiting. Makes me sick. Two of them are lying. There's plenty of opportunities for you to open the Bible and instruct your children. But do you know what that takes? <coughs> Take letter B. Invest them through love. You know why most dads walk away? They just don't want to make the investment. Investment in your kids means you have a long, a longing relationship and a leading relationship with them. By longing, I mean you want your children in your life. I once heard a man say, back when I was a single guy, and I would play a lot of sports on the weeknights because I didn't have anything else to do. It filled up my time. Go play basketball with this fella. And one night on the basketball court, he and about four or five others of us who uh, hung out together, he was married. He found out that his wife became pregnant against what their plans were. And he said, oops, one got past the goalie. Even then, when I wasn't necessarily living, living for the Lord, I was appalled by that choice. Men, becoming a dad may not be in your plan. But if you and your wife are blessed with a pregnancy, that is God's plan. The psalmist tells us that children are an heritage of the Lord. We do well, men, to long for that relationship. 
Can I tell you something? If you long for your career more than you do for, with a relationship with your kids, you are messed up. I don't know if that's good preaching, Pastor. Trust me, it is. There is something wrong in your thinking if you long for your career more than being with your children. That's not to say you shouldn't work. You have to provide for your family. He that doesn't provide for his own, Paul told Timothy, is worse than an infidel, an unbeliever, or one that actually rejects God. So you have to provide for your own. I'm not suggesting that. But if you long for that promotion, if you long for that career more than you long to raise your children that God has given to you, he never in the word of God says your career is inheritance. Ever. Certainly says your children are. The current young adult generation coming into marriage and childbearing years, it seems, as a pastor, as I observe, are more concerned with their passions rather than God's purpose for our race, and that is to be fruitful and multiply. Listen, when a godless Oh, I'm starting to like him a little bit more and more. A guy like Elon Musk can note that the birth rate is too low in America for us to sustain our viability. By the way, I read a great book about 10 years ago called The Demographic Cliff. It said by, that, said by the year 2040, Japan will likely cease being a nation because their birth rate is too low. Now, this message is not about going out and have babies. My point is it's because we've stopped longing to have children. We look at them as burdens, and problems, and nuisances, and drains on my bank account, those that steal my 401k. I'm glad that I have three that steal my 401k. When I'm old, I may be asking to live with them, but I'm glad. <laughs> if you're a man and you have a wife, then it is God's design for you to try and have children. To actively avoid doing so, you are not fulfilling your role as a man, as a husband, to be a father. The concept that we just aren't sure we want kids is a fool's thought. And I mean that in a biblical sense. The fool had said in his heart, there is no God. He said, God rejected me. Now, God may not bless you with children. That's God's decision. The problem that I am noting in many this in this generation is that they don't want to have children. That is antithetical to this book. It's antithetical, men, to your role. Leadership is the second word of the investment. It's not just a longing for them, but it's a leadership. In this capacity, I, I simply mean knowing them. Knowing what their needs are, what their wants are, knowing them emotionally, knowing them psychologically, most importantly, knowing where they are spiritually. Paul tells the Colossians and the Ephesian fathers to not provoke their children to anger or wrath. Why? In Colossians, he says, because they'll become discouraged. Leading a church, for me, is sometimes much easier than leading my boys. You guys always see me like this. Or you come in the office. They see me when I mess up. They see me when I'm out on the mower and I go, hey, hey, you're not doing it right. You're a jerk of a dad. There might be moments where dad fails. Yes, I'm human. So are you. 
closing this morning, the role of a man is being diminished, and it is to the detriment of our world. The diminishing of the role of a man is purposeful, and sometimes we men are complicit in it. Far too many Christian men have fallen in line with the modern psychology. What am I going to do? We've traded in our biblical manhood for a passive and regretful role. A biblically behaved man, from 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 13, is one who is obedient to God, who is open and honest with his wife, and obliged to raising his children in the fashion that God has designed. That kind of man, that kind of man, will help reshape our community and our country. Father, help us, I pray, as we close our songs this morning.